Welcome to Don't Feed the Trolls, Matt. Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me. Have you ever been here before? I've. I, this is my first time. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like uh, when these come out, we've been just crushing. We've done more podcasts in a smaller amount of time than ever before. So we're, you know, we're going to be able to listen to these podcasts in the future and be like, I don't remember having that conversation. Yeah, it'll be beautiful. Um, but today we're going to talk to uh, producer, legendary producer. Yeah, you know, he's also real. He's, he's not just a legend. He's a real person. Well, can you be a legend and still be alive? <laughs> you can be a hero, but you have to die to be a legend. Really? I think so. Like Willie I mean, Mays is Willie Mays is still alive. He's not a legendary baseball player. He would be a living legend. It's rare. But. Living legend. <laughs> you have to put living in front of it. Yes, hey, I'm glad yes. we cleared this up. Yeah. So the living legend Brad Wood, who's done um, a ton of great records. He did our third record, and uh, the dude loved to talk, I remember, so I thought we would often have this signal, like, Brad, stop talking and work on the record, and I thought, <laughs> you got to bring these kinds of people on the podcast. That's what you do. You just chat, so I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, Matt. Great. I'm excited. Um, I don't think we have anything new to, to announce. Uh, nope, other, other than, than, yeah, go support us on Patreon. I like your podcast. It's it's fun. I I, I listened to it uh, for a while. Then I got out of listening to podcasts completely. Got really into audiobooks, and then, um, and then have been um, sort of folding back in podcasts again, um, which is good. There's a lot of really great ones out there. But I've been sort of you know I just sort sort of wander around the the, the landscape. Hey, and you know. the fact that we made the team at all that's pretty cool. <laughs> Stop. We're right, not. So- uh, we're not that interesting, uh, but we try to be. <laughs> well, no, no, you're right. You're not that interesting. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'll welcome you. I'll welcome was, you to the show, and then we can go from there because <laughs> sure. that way people know. All right, Brad Wood, you've been listening to this podcast forever. It sounds like. Um, <laughs> welcome since, to the po- since it started. Yeah. Welcome to Don't Feed the Trolls. You are just. I'm, I was always thinking about you and that time we had together and. Southern California making our third record cue. Um, it was such a good time. We had so many talks, and I often think, you know, who needed a podcast was Brad Wood. Like <laughs> of all of all the guys that we made records with, you were like the most talkative. All the other producers just quiet, turning knobs, getting it done. You were just chatting away. I loved it. But you, uh, when are you when are you starting your podcast? <laughs> um, I have no plans, but I, w- <laughs> I I would do it. I. Uh, uh, just coincidentally, our oldest daughter Olivia, who's going to be 21 in a in a week and a half, um, I think she she was probably uh, 12 when you met her. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, she's you know she's in college now, and starting last summer as for a summer internship, uh, she's been working for Song Exploder podcast. Okay, and uh, and and has continued now that even though she's back at school, she does uh, transcription and um, further interviews. And um, also uh, does uh, some retroactive editing of the 
of the older episodes so they have a new um, distribution and and so she goes back and re-edits takes out old advertising content so that they can put it into their new server and and insert new sponsor ads and right stuff like that. but uh, she's a she's the one who got me really into listening to song exploder um that's a great podcast and i love that format uh, that rishikesh has uh, come up with um so yeah the, the podcast world is ever expanding and it seems to be getting to my ears better and better and better not just in the content but in how people are um editing it and presenting themselves and as hosts and um and and i think um I think that we've all been listening to podcasts, except we used to call them like This American Life. There, you know, right. It was like, you know, it was NPR stuff that you'd hear on a Saturday or, or Terry Gross, you know, Fresh Air. Um, and she's, she's the original podcaster as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, those are definitely like w- really well-produced programs. The podcasts mm-hmm. I listen to are usually like three-hour-long conversations that just go everywhere. And that's – I feel like they're – like Joe Rogan, for instance – he kind of like pioneered that long format and he, he'll just talk to anybody. Like I, I heard Steven Tyler on his, on his podcast uh, the other day. Cause Nate, you recommended it to me cause Steven Tyler believes in aliens and stuff. So Nate was like, you got to check this out. And <laughs> well, um, no, yeah, they were talking about that. Stuff. They were talking, I mean, they talk about everything, but the beauty is that you really get to see a whole person with this, that, that long format, which is just not conducive to selling ads or, or any sort of radio program where you have snippets and hot takes and sound bites. So that's what I like about a podcast, even though we don't always produce ours that way. But I think a, I, I agree. I think a deeper dive is is ideal for this format. And um, and I have to admit that it's only recently that I've even considered listening to anything by Joe Rogan because he was the host of a TV show about bugs and wrestling and fear stuff. factor. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then before that he was like, he's like this wrestling fighty guy. Yeah. Extreme, MMA. Extreme. Yeah. 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 You know, fighting and kicking and you know, <laughs> b- breaking people's noses. So I, and I have friends who are stand up comedians or fans of stand up. like Rogan is great. You got to listen to him. Like, yeah, that's yeah. And it's like, it's like saying like Hulk Hogan is an awesome novelist. I, I just like, I can't, sure. I, I only been recently able to even, hold those two images in my head it's an outdated notion but right i just i just figure anybody hosting a reality series about uh you know having snakes dumped into a tank with you or right. whatever is probably it's probably somebody whose opinion i don't really care about sorry it's, Joe. it's uh, definitely no, but, the, but, the, but, but the funny thing def- is it's not his opinion that you get he's just a guy that asks questions and really doesn't like he just lets people be themselves and yeah he gets, he's really good at that yeah he, he does ask a lot of questions i was thinking about that the other day like he doesn't I mean, he sometimes will like after the fact will you you know kind of go on his uh, little rant about like I don't know I don't know what these these people are crazy or whatever. But yeah, for the most part, he's really good at asking questions, and I think that's all podcast is is someone tells stories and someone asks questions, and you kind of yeah. get the get the point. But it's it's amazing oh, how I'm, interesting it can be to hear to listen to people have a conversation though. It's, it's like I'll find myself listening. I'm like, why is this fascinating? I just I love it, but I don't know I, why. I think I think my comment uh, about Joe has more to do with my own biases about about who I think I should listen to who's worthy of being heard sure and um, you know I'm glad that he's persevered so that people like me who are set in their ways and don't want to give somebody a chance you know are sort of in some ways forced to confront their you know their biases I mean because basically anybody who espouses like wrestling or extreme fighting or, or even boxing at this point is just somebody um, 
or who's made their you know made their bones doing that um, is just somebody I just kind of discount. It's not a world that I'm part of. It's you know it's it's brutish and hyper masculine and and uh, yeah, strange, strangely you know like angrily homo erotic and you know, self hating <laughs> and stuff. And it, 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 no, it is though. It's any number of those things, and I just don't find yeah, that right. to be too compelling. I don't know if I really want to hear what Joe Rogan has to say about about um right about anything at least that's what i assumed and uh and and so liz fair did a uh, uh uh did a podcast with him and and i watched that and it was hilarious and i was like all right all right all right i'll have yeah. to give this guy and didn't he have some sort of the mind of menses didn't he have like didn't he have some sort of beef with a co- comic who stole stuff from him whatever maybe a decade ago you guys were still huh. children then. maybe but, yeah, we just, yep. you know I don't know. It just seems like he's the kind of guy that that I wouldn't like. Yeah. And, um, well, it's funny. And, I, I, he think, he seems like a, he comes off like a meathead because he's really into the MMA fighting and all that stuff. But he right. really he he really doesn't. Um, he's not aggressive with his with the people he interviews, and he interviews people of all different, right. you know, stripes. And so that's what I like is that he kind of remains uh, the neutral party and just asks people questions. And some of the people are are just insane. Um, and he gets musicians and I don't listen to the MMA or the comedian ones that he has. I mostly just mm-hmm. listen to the science ones because I like science people or uh, political people, you know, expressing themselves. Um, but he's, he, he, ma- he maintains some good neutrality. And that's why what good. I appreciate in a host, I guess. Well, well doing I'm a podcast. To, uh, rethink that. Yeah. Doing a podcast, though, as we learned from one guest from South by Southwest, they did a whole uh, thing on podcasts and the average podcast only lasts like three episodes. Mm. So, it's a. <laughs> if you get into it, Brad, just know it's not going to be easy. So I have it's a question. Like, I have a question for Brad. Uh, yeah. To, to bring it back to you know, obviously, there's reasons why you're not into you know MMA and 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 toxic masculinity because you've been spending the last thirty years in in studios with hippie musicians making records. Uh, tell me about Shrimp Boat. I'm on your Wikipedia right now. 1989. I was six years old, and you produced a band called shrimp boat what's that about uh shrimp boat was the very first uh album uh that i had any 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 involvement with as a as an engineer or producer and okay that, they're they were a chicago band uh we had just opened our recording studio a commercial studio called idful music corporation and that was brian deck the record producer and myself and uh, a third guy dan sonis who uh a great musician and and he had come into some money and we had decided to use some of his money and build a recording studio and we had an opening party a bunch of people showed up we invited lots of people had free food and um huber beer 31 cases of huber beer <laughs> and, and a lot of a lot of bands showed up and you know even steve albini came by and wished us luck he, he took took a sandwich home with him i think and uh and this band shrimp <laughs> i love shrimp the boat details the shrimp boat guys were uh were dragged in by uh the allure of free food and booze at, by a friend of ours and uh mutual friend and the next day one of the guys in the band called and said we want to book time so that album was begun well, with brian deck uh, as the engineer producer and then finished by me because brian had a previous um session that he had to do in a different studio so i picked up with overdubs and mixed it and that was the first thing i'd ever really recorded other than a handful of songs just maybe a month before um and that record was really extraordinary and fun uh the band was really special and when the record was done 
they decided, well, they always decided they were going to put it out themselves. All their cassettes prior to that had been self-released. Long story short is they pressed up a thousand copies of the vinyl. Um, I joined the band shortly after that uh, because their drummer quit. And I joined the band as drummer, but not I didn't play on that first record. I asked them for 100 mm. copies of the vinyl, and I said, I'll use you know, my studio as sort of home base um, studio's address. We were getting the CMJ Music Journal every week, uh, Rockpool, and, and we subscribed to a bunch of magazines about the music industry. And I'll just start looking for people's names and record labels' names. And I sent copies to all uh, with a cover letter and a photograph of the band to all these different um, magazines that were out there. It would be like The Paste or The Consequence of Sound. You know, CMJ is still around, but back then it was pretty heavy hitter. About a week after I sent it, uh, Craig Marks, who is the editor of CMJ, called to confirm that we were indeed a real band. You know, do we play gigs? Um, you know, who's <laughs> in the band? Are you, are you guys just a side project? And I, and I answered his questions, and he said, I just want to double-check because we're going to put you on the cover of the magazine next week. What? What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that never was, happens. Uh, That's how yeah. easy it was back then. Yeah, exactly. Is, yeah, and then Rockpool followed <laughs> up, and uh, and all these other magazines. And by the end of the year, it was CMJ's uh, album of the year, and we'd been invited out to play um, the CMJ Music Marathon, which I don't think still exists, but it was hmm. a big deal, big music conference similar to South by Southwest. Yeah, and New York, in New York City, and we went out and we played with. No, we played uh, CMJ. Sherwood did CMJ sure. in two thousand seven. Yeah, I, I think it might I only it's still be re recently gone, but, um, you know, we played, I'm trying to remember that showcase, we played with, um, we played a couple, we did we did one with the Mekons, we opened for the Mekons, um, and we played with, um, I think they, they crammed us onto the Matador showcase, um, we played with Railroad Jerk and uh, probably John Spencer Blues Explosion or something like that, but, you know, it was, it was great, it was a great introduction, the band had been around for a while. So that's Shrimp Boat. Um, I stayed in the band until um, 93 and quit. And then they broke up shortly there uh, thereafter, a few months after the final album came out. We did get signed to um, Bar None Records, which was a pretty happening label at the time. Based but it looks like in the meantime, in the meantime, before all that, you're doing more records. You're doing, I mean, between 90, 89 and 93, it looks like you did like 25 different records. Yeah, I, I did more than that. Um, <laughs> I there were some years where I would do fifty or fifty four albums a year. Albums. What? Yeah, like just in a week. Um, per in, album in the court in a, in a year. So I would uh, a band would come in, set up on a Friday, let's say, and we would track everything, do overdubs on Saturday, mix on Sunday. And you're you're producer at this point. I wasn't calling myself a producer. You were just engineer. My, uh, re, uh, recordist is what I used to. When did you, what, what, what album made you consider yourself a producer? What, when did you go, this is, I'm a producer now? It's a record called Liz Fair, Exxon Geivel. And then you were just like, that's it. Uh, that was at that point, I, I, had, I don't think I have any listed production credits prior to that album. And, uh, and that was, a, I think it shows an evolution in my thinking about what it was that I wanted to be referred to as. Hmm. And uh, and I, I was ambivalent at first about the idea of production or you know who a producer was in the traditional sense and um, and and a lot of that was colored by the discussion at the time led especially by Steve Albini in the idea that producers were bad and that record labels were bad hmm. and that you know or certain kinds of record labels were bad and 
Um, and I had a mangled sense maybe of what a record producer actually was. Right. And I didn't know if I didn't know if I wanted to be called that. I also didn't like to be called an engineer. And I still kind of have a problem with being called an engineer because I'm not an engineer. I don't have a degree in any engineering field. Sure. And I in some ways it's uh I always figured an I, engineer was just someone who knew how to get the tones. Well, it, yes, it's, <laughs> it's it's true, true. Uh, and and there's but there's electrical engineers and there's right. you know, structural engineers and those people all have engineering degrees. I don't have a degree in engineering yet an audio engineer is most often a person who just happened to have, you know, the wherewithal to, to learn how to record things. And I, I always thought that it was sort of an insult to the people who put the time in and the money to actually get a degree in engineering. So all of my credits used to read recorded by Brad Wood at mm-hmm. Info Music Corporation. And that, would, that was, or, or recordist, which I, I thought was pretentious, but recorded by was how <laughs> I always wanted to be credited. And I changed my feelings about that. I just stopped caring, frankly, that that the you know it doesn't seem to be hurting the engineering you know world uh to have another person call himself a recording engineer and it seems like everybody wanted to know so what was happening is that records that i'd worked on um i've always asked brian deck and i both asked please use the logo of the recording studio and the name of the recording studio and if you can maybe even you know the phone number sometimes they would do that but people would find us and call and say man i really love this corn dolly single um it says it's recorded by Brad Wood, but who's the producer? Like, who engineered it? You know? <laughs> yeah. And then I eventually I just threw in the towel. And really, when it came time for Guyville, uh, you know, to be hashed out as far as the credits and stuff, that was the first time I can remember saying, I really want to be credited as right. the record producer. And you get, uh, that's, and you get points, too. Uh, right. Yeah, that... Uh, because how do you I, get points as a recordist? There's no, there's nothing well, you can, built in. <laughs> you can, well, you can argue for for credits for yourself in any right, kind of contract. Right. It doesn't really, you, know, you say like, you know, uh, uh, yes, but uh, with major labels, there was always this push. As I found, somebody's got to be called the producer, and somebody's got to got to be right. called the engineer because we have this like slot in our spreadsheet. We somebody we got to somebody's name has to go in there. And what right. I found a few times is that. Other people would insert their own names, so like the A and R guy would say, well, "Fuck it, I'm I'm the producer." <laughs> <You know? laughs> of course, it's the A and R guy too. Na- nature abhors a vacuum. You know, yeah. some, some <laughs> we got to fill that slot with somebody's name. Right, <laughs> right. Or, oh, or, or or more often the the I think the critics or people who are curious about it, they would just fill in the blanks and they would say, "Well, obviously that's Brad." Or more likely, if it's was, was a, before I was more established. They would just think that well, right. obviously the, must be the artists themselves that's producing it. You know, I I would love to hear from you about the 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 concept or the position of producer and what that means to you. I I, I worked with a producer for years. Uh, this guy Michael Basket, we call him Elvis. Uh, he he came up at NRG in like the I would say mid. I think I think he was just an, a second assistant engineer on a Stone Temple Pilots record, and then some guy didn't show up and he got thrown in there or whatever. And basically at that point he was going to USC and, and dropped out because he was, he had a credit on a, on a big album. And then he Mm -hmm. just kind of worked his way up or whatever, but he said he would work with producers and in the quote unquote old school. I mean, they were cutting tape and everything. I'm sure that was probably the majority of your career in the beginning, but he was like, he was saying that producers didn't actually know much about music. A lot of them would just sit there in a soundstage and say, play it again, play it again, play it again until the band was slick enough and it was up to their <laughs> standards. And then at that point, 
the engineer would take over and, and track the thing mostly live and um, like sheep herders yeah they weren't like nowadays every producer Just seems to be someone who can arrange who can write who can play they can i can hand my guitar to the producer and they can they can shred too is like how do you define yourself as a producer or what you know when, what does the concept of producer mean to you well, and that's really a continuation of what we were just talking about. I, I, I don't like um, much of the old pr- producer concept, but hmm. but I've also learned to have more respect for it. But it, I don't identify with. It, I should say that I think when I was younger, I actively disliked the idea of a producer who uh, who couldn't strap on a guitar or. Right, uh, write out you know read and write music you know write you know write out a, a part for a cello um, or or uh, or engineer for that matter. Mm-hmm. I, I just assumed if you're going to produce something, that's like saying you're a cook, but you don't actually know how to put the ingredients together. But you you know when it's right. You, you know, taste um, the food. <laughs> yeah, how, uh, how, how, you know what should the temperature be for the oven? Nah, man. Somewhere between 300 and 450 degrees, but I'm not exactly sure. I'll know when it's right. And so you keep sticking, you keep mixing up batches for muffins, and they keep coming out wrong. And eventually, like the monkey with the typewriter, you know, we stumble across right. an, an edible batch of, 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 of uh, muffins. And then, and, then, and then the producer turns to the cook and says, now make a whole bunch of those just like that, and walks out to go golfing or something. I, like, yeah. That's... That's not the kind of producer that I ever envisioned myself being, and I never have been that. So, if you, you know, if you were looking for a record producer in the 1960s, that's almost what all those producers were. And mm-hmm. it was the rare, it was the rare producer like George Martin, who actually could play any number of instruments and actually could write and did write his own music uh, and score and scores for uh, television and radio. Um, and I think it's also part of the reason why his collaborations with the Beatles were so successful is mm-hmm. that he wasn't the traditional type of producer back in those days. And I think there was some sense of him within that community back then that he was a bit of an oddball. Hmm. Um, well, I think, I think the thing that struck us as Sherwood when we were working with you is that, you know, you had been in, you had, you were currently in a band and you had been in bands and that hadn't really been, I mean, a lot of guys quit bands and then uh, I guess get into the music business, but a lot of producers are, it seemed like they were the guy behind the band and they never really wanted to be in the band. So I think you kind of brought some of that camaraderie to working with us and working with other artists, it seems, is that you were kind of, you know, you kind of viewed yourself as part of the band. It wasn't like, oh, I'm dominant over you and you're going to do what I say and blah, blah, blah. But I'm going to, but I want to be in this and, and work around this and get the creative juices going and had more of a ownership of it. I don't know if that makes um, any sense. But it, it, it sort of doesn't, but, but also I, I, I think that there's, plenty of people who have been in bands who could say yeah you know the leader of our band or the singer in our band is such a you know pretentious ass that he or she you know needs to have their fingers on everything so i i i think it has more to do with personality type and i don't really want to have ownership over anybody's work um you know i i don't like to insert myself as a as an instrumentalist in somebody's music unless i've been asked or if there's something that's really sort of begging for uh for my input um, I don't assume that I'm like the fifth member of a four-piece band. Um, well, not like, not like. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think it lends to a positive thing when you're working oh, with yeah. a band, not a negative thing. I'm saying that you didn't, you didn't, you didn't come at us like that. It wasn't like, oh, this is what I, this is what, this is what you have to do, Sherwood. 
This is, you, uh, you would more just ask us questions and s- get the vibe. Whereas a guy who's like a producer from all the other horror stories I've heard from the big ones are like, no, it was his decision and we had to do it. You know, I don't you know, like but that, that's a, that's a legitimate way to make a record though. There's no one right way. Um, there's several right ways. There's even more wrong ways, but really at the end of it, um, most of the people I've worked with who have worked with really big, uh, producers who are much larger in stature than they were at the time they work with them and, and maybe got pushed around or there's some, you know, sort of infamous stories of some of these, uh, collaborations where, Lots of records got sold, but the band is ambivalent at best about about the recorded product. And you talk to them a few years after that's happened, and they're maybe still a little upset about it. You talk to them 20 years later when like the box set's coming out and they've you know bought their second home <laughs> uh, <laughs> with the you know the royalties and the sinks and the publishing from Monster Records that this authoritarian producer helped create, and they're a little less ambivalent about it. You know, um, I I think that. I think that depending on the kind of music you're working on in the genre, you know, uh, and the marketplace at the time, sometimes having somebody who's going to push you and challenge you in ways that you're really uncomfortable with can actually be fruitful. If, if the goal is to expand beyond your current, you know, playing field, you want to, you know, you want to swing for the fences. And I think one of the things that I don't like about my own, um, production style is that I, I rarely put myself in the situation where I'm pushing somebody out of their comfort zone hmm. so thor- so thoroughly, you know. I, 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 so I'm I'm getting. You don't old have the M A A approach. I M-M-A. well, I don't. Uh, but I I also I'm getting older. M A A. Sorry. I just don't want to. Um, I I I just don't want to like out of hand dismiss so many different ways to to basically approach uh, an undisciplined and and sort of freewheeling. Uh, uh, industry. I hmm. mean, there's so many ways to make records, and there's so many ways to have success, uh, you know, in the recording studio, and uh, and I think that uh, I think that 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 our feelings about a process can be, you know, evolving over time. I think perspective is great, and um, I'm thinking of a of a band in particular. Like uh, uh, I can say it doesn't. It's not a big deal. The Bangles. I mean, they're sort of infamous for having felt ambivalent about. Uh, at least one of their records, you know, the ones that had massive hits on it, because mm-hmm. they had, they had, they felt pressure to perform uh, at a level that, that, well, I, it wasn't that they couldn't do it, but I think that there was impatience on the side of the record label or maybe production. And I'm really good friends with their producer, um, David Kahn, and their collaboration yielded massive hits. And I don't know that anybody like myself at the time, who was in his teens, early twenties, when those were big hits, had any sense that the Bangles were anything other than the Bangles. You know, hmm. you just you saw these women on stage playing th- th- these great songs, and uh, it all just sort of seemed fine. I, I you know, I there didn't is think this that- weird, there is this weird feeling though, of like being in the band that like, um you want to maintain the sense of ownership of it, but then there's certain bands that like, they, all of their success was based on their producer or somebody yes. telling them to do this thing. And it's hard because once you get to that point where you are successful, you kind of feel like a fraud, I guess. And you feel like this isn't really us. This isn't really ours. And then they try to do their own thing. And so many times it's just, Oh, what was that? Like, it's terrible. Yeah, I don't, that, why, that, what that, is that, it? This sense of ego and pride that kind of keeps, 
people from being able to be told, like, do this? Well, in the case of the Bengals, um, I got the unique opportunity to to produce and engineer their reunion record. So the original band got back together and they hired me. And And one of the reasons they hired me is because I am known as somebody who doesn't hire in session players to to replay or to replace uh, a band member's um, uh, performance. Hmm. And and so that was great. And, you know, these are, these are women who have had great success. Um, some of them afterwards with solo stuff, all of them in, in other projects, but the Bengals, you know, far and away, their most successful project as a group or individually. And, and they were back together again and getting to know what it's like to make music together again after many years of p- being apart. And they, they so adore and love each other. It was really fun to be in the room with them. But I also got a chance to listen to their stories. And, and some of these stories would come out, you know, initially when we first started with pre-production. But the more interesting ones unfolded as we got into, like, now we're getting to the bass parts. Now we're getting to the guitar parts. Now we're getting to vocals. And some of the stories they had uh, were most of the time really funny and sometimes they're quite you know painful um there's some experiences and i I think that it's made more poignant or deepened with them because they're all women in an industry that doesn't really have any women you know behind the glass there's there were no women engineers probably for them to hire there certainly were no women producers that that you know their high-powered uh label would have agreed to allow them to hire at the time Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and so you know, the misogyny and the sexism um, was probably just out of control. I, I I can't imagine that it wasn't anything other than a daily fight, you know. Um, so they had that to overcome, in addition to feeling the pressure to to have a even greater success. And um, and I'm friends with David Kahn. And I continue to be friends with David Kahn, and I'm obviously friends with the guys in the Bangles. And they both were at the at the time I was making their record interested in what the other party was thinking about things. And David. I, I don't think he would mind me saying that he was really concerned that uh, that they still like him and that you know you know like mm-hmm. he it, it, he he really he he was really pained at the idea that that what happened while they made their record together records um, was anything other than something that they loved because he loves it and he loves them and um, I felt like by the time they got to the end of making this record with me they had maybe exercised enough of those demons. Plus I'm an advocate for David Kahn. I've worked with him on other stuff, I think. And I love those Bengals records. And I think that I'm hoping that it helped them to see their current producer, who's just a fan of all of it, you know, um, that it's okay that, you know, maybe you can embrace these things. These experiences were situational and there's a lot of factors at play and, and, and everyone did the best they could. And you know what, by God, the best, that you could do sold millions and millions and millions of copies. So that's great. Yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, like yeah. in the end, in the end, we're all better for it. As far as like the world of music, there's more art art out there and you guys have careers if you want to pursue them. And, um, uh, I don't, I don't mean to diminish the, the struggle that might've been going on at the time, but in the end, uh, life is short and, and let's try to make it as sweet as possible. It was, and it was an extraordinary opportunity for me, sort of just sort of being, Oh, bearing witness to this uh, recording process and to hear these stories. And I really appreciate them being as frank as they were. Um, and again, for the most part, it was, you know, funny, you know, bittersweet at best, you know, uh, at worst. And uh, they're just a, a, a really incredible group of people who really, I don't think there's a more successful all woman group in history. Huh. 
I, don't, I mean, yeah. I, I, I might be wrong, but I don't know that there's certainly not an American all-woman rock band or pop band that has sold anywhere near as much as the Bangles. I mean, they're the groundbreakers, especially hmm. you know in, in rock music. Can you think of any other than like Haim yeah, that's difficult. The Donnas. No, I mean, I, L, I, honestly, L seven. To be honest, I didn't realize I didn't realize they were all female today. Yeah, I didn't really know yeah. that. Yep, um, that's but, crazy. That reminds me of of just like studio how it can be therapy you know and and how the process is so much more emotional than than people think it is you think you're just going in to make a record but you're kind of going in to uh you know go like dig up some dig up some uh some 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 buried bones of your past and of your present and reach catharsis in some sense and a lot of producers i mean the i think the best producers obviously engage on that level on that like emotional level with the artists um you know it's not well, it's just like a, a business it, it feels like you know from all the years being in a band and all the friends i've talked to over the years that there's some kind of like weird sexual marriage chemistry that happens where this thing's either going to soar or it's going to go the worst divorce you've ever seen in your life because <laughs> there's it it it's like when you play music with people it's like you're making love to each other and then there's a there always is emotion attached somebody's gonna get hurt no matter what happens with this did do you feel that way i feel that way uh, i feel 100 percent that way and and i don't know that um that it's always uh a cathartic or um a, uh emotional musical content sometimes the music can be quite light and airy but there's always and on the most basic level hmm. a performance a performance anxiety for everybody who's got to stand in front of a microphone and either you know hit their drums or play their guitar or play their keyboards or sing, uh, especially singers, it's just very exposing. And and I don't know that there's a human on earth that when they first hear their recorded voice back, don't recoil in horror and go, oh, oh <laughs> I can't believe that's me. Well, you know, imagine doing that literally for a living. I mean, you do get used to it. Yeah. But there there is performance anxiety for everybody that you would record and you know the session musicians i've hired like you know leland sklar is this amazing bass player who's played with literally everybody and thousands and thousands of of records and maybe tens of thousands of sessions um um you know he's bulletproof at this point nothing can shake that guy and he's so zen and chill but he's also a session player, you know. That's 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 literally his stock and trade. But most of the people mm -hmm. I work with are bands who, if they're lucky, might go into a recording studio two or three or four times to make a record, an entire album. Mm -hmm. So they got very little time in the studio to really understand what's happening and uh, and your entire and, identity and and output for your life is going to be, you know, attached yeah. to whatever happens. Oh my God! Yeah. And 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 there's uh, there's there's illness issues, especially when it comes to singers. And and Nate, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Nate made the mistake. Only we thought it was a great thing that he was doing. He's they're staying in the the rental house next door, and he would swim, uh, you know, like forty fifty miles in this giant <laughs> pool. There, he was swimming every day, and you know, and feeling really healthy and stuff. But uh, I think was it not that like maybe you 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 reacted to the 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 chlorine in the pool. And you I was had, uh, getting dehydrated, and then I was having like um, acid reflux while I was swimming a little bit. Yes. So that you know, that we I remember you actually funny because I just told this story on the podcast a couple episodes ago where you sent me off to the hills of Hollywood, and I had met with that legendary guy that, and yeah. he was like, 
gave me all these rules like sounds like your voice is tired and sounds like you've been eating that late or doing something and i told him what i was doing he's like yep you're burning your vocal cords out but uh yeah that was for like two weeks there it was really it was a really weird time like what's going on but it was something simple but it did give me a lot of performance anxiety i remember being really like oh shit i lost it it's gone (laughs) with 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 singers especially there's just so much uh at stake when it comes time to cut vocals and i think a a mistake is to treat singers just like drummers or just like guitar players or just like bass players Um, (laughs) preach it's it's a it's a totally different uh it's a totally different instrument we're all almost all of us are born with a voice i mean some people i guess maybe are you know are mute and they can't speak at all but you know the vast majority of us are born speaking singing talking um and some of us have this by the shape of our vocal cords and our nasal uh you know passages and and the shape of our mouths and heads we have really nice voices and some of those people have not only nice speaking voices or singing voices but they also are you know very musical and those people usually become the singers for bands you know um, and that might be the end of their study into their instrument, <laughs> just genetics. Mm, I got exactly. lucky, and and so they might, you know, in a room full of musicians, you got, let's say, you got five people in a band: two guitar players, a drummer, bass player, and a singer. And amongst those people, by the time they're at a level where they're working in a recording studio, maybe they're on a record label and they've done some tours, but they're proficient enough at their instruments so that they're sitting in a room with you about to make a record. Of those people, of all those artists. Uh, there's only usually one person in that room who has spent almost no time perfecting their instrument, mm-hmm. and that's always the singer. <laughs> so you know, you're, you're not you're not born playing bass. You have to put the thing in your hands, take lessons, yeah. practice. Pra- yeah. You have to at least practice a lot in order to get to be good enough to be in a band that good. And if you're a right, drummer, it's, it's so cr- yeah. yeah. It's so, so critical to be yeah. uh, to be emotive too with your voice, and and that re- relies so heavily on mood and. You know, oh, obviously, sure. you know, when you play drums, you can you got to hit hard and you got to you got to play with some flavor and sauce. But like a voice is something everybody recognize and can and can decipher quite uh, easily if it's bullshit or not. And yeah, he's well, I would good. say he, that I, I would yeah. say that like being a singer, a lot of guys in bands, it was like they wanted to be in a band. And the only thing they could bring to the table was a, a voice. Right. So it's like. Mm-hmm that was their thing they could do, you know? Um, Because a lot of guys are just up front with a microphone, at least the bands we toured with. And I thought to myself, oh, you know, like that's harder because it's like you, you feel sort of insecure coming into this. Like, I wish I could just play drums or bass or whatever, guitar and be really good at that, but I'm not, but I could sing. And so you, you, you know, if you sang in your car or whatever, that was like, is much practice as you got, but you just kind of like, and the the other musicians don't want to be the singer. They just want to play the drums and the bass. And so it's like they kind of it's kind of this weird thing where like nobody really wants to be this guy. But some guy has to be that guy. And he's you know what I mean? It's always this weird dance. I mean, um, uh, unless it was our band and it was always Dan and I fighting over who was going (laughs) to sing. You guys are uh, you guys are unusual in my experience to have two great singers who also could play. Uh, you know, musical instruments in addition to singing. But what I'm talking about specifically is that you can become, uh, you know, a really great singer without having to do much. A lot of it is out of your control. It's literally just by genetic, you know, chance. Privilege. And, 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 and that will carry you, <laughs> that'll carry you all the way 
to a to a, you know a successful career as a musician, and you're the only person who hasn't had to sit there and woodshed and practice. So you know, guitar players stare at their hands for a couple of years, and then eventually they get good enough where they don't have to look at their hands all that often. Um, but there's thousands of hours that go into getting to the place where you're in a successful band. Unless you're a singer, there's a really good chance that you haven't ever really examined your instrument. So I'm not talking about mm. mood, which also factors into it. You know, you can be you can be depressed and bummed out, and you can you know kick ass as a drummer. Uh, you could also have like intestinal distress, and you can kick ass as a drummer. You could have a horrible cough and have laryngitis and still kick ass as a as a drummer. Um, you can't do any of those things and, and really nail it as a singer. Everything right. has to be work, working. Most things have to be working right as a singer in order for you to be able yeah. to sing. But I, I'm talking about the ability to know your instrument. And and, and so just like a, a, a guitar player who values um, their instrument, you wouldn't take your, you know, your Fender Mustang and like, you know, throw it in the pool uh, every every day. You know, because oh shit, it's going to get waterlogged and ruined. And the next going to get bent. And, you know, and, and and you'll have to fix it. But people will do that with their voice. They'll like sit down and smoke, um, you yeah. know, a half a pack of cigarettes and drink a bunch of whiskey. Stay up till three in the morning. And like all you know, guitar player is also doing the same thing. He's hung over in the morning, but he's he can, he can still fight play. through it. Yeah. But your your voice is shot. Right. So like 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 what I'm talking about is the ability for singers to realize oh, this is my instrument. And there's things about my instrument right. that I need I need to treat um, uh, as seriously oh, yeah. as, as somebody does their drum kit. Right. It's and, like, and you know, I remember. Go ahead, Nate. I was going to say, I remember being on tour and like, you know, if your lips were a little bit chapped, you're like, oh, shit, I got to drink water. And then you're like, oh, I feel a little bit of cold coming on. I got to take some emergency or whatever. It was like you were just you got really good at knowing when there was going to be a problem with your voice. Right. And then you're looking at your other bandmates and they're looking at you like, what are we going to do? Mm. I remember I had. I had uh, I got I got kind of sick and I had to go to like an emergency clinic before a sold out show and get a shot of cortisone just so the swelling would go down in my throat so I could sing a song or sing the wow. set and um, you know I'm taking a taxi across Orlando trying to get to a you know 24 hour med center to get a shot of cortisone and then because our manager said that might help and it did. But it's like a sold out show, three bands, you know, we got to go on and it's like we're, we're on in like two hours. And I'm like, shit, what am I going to do? Yeah. You know? um, there's this pressure, there's this weird pressure that that, that that is weird. And your bandmates just don't understand. And then you feel like a diva because you're trying to tell them like, yeah. guys, look, I got I got to baby this thing. And they're oh, like, they get judgmental. Whatever, they're man. like, well, what did you do? <laughs> did you, you know, it's because you did this, because you did that. And it's like, no, sometimes it's just wear and tear and there's not enough recovery time. And I and can, that, I can uh, go vocal. I can go total, have a vocal rest and be Matt's silent a singer all too. day. But, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't. And like, you know, when I was 25, it would, it would recover a lot faster than when I'm 35. So that's just what happens. But I well, what well, I want to well, well, go ahead. Sure, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, well, I was gonna, well, what I was going to say was <laughs> uh, sorry about that. What I was going to say was that uh, I, I think Matt, you had mentioned uh, that you know people critique singers, and that's because everyone's got a voice. So you know, it, there's it's not it's not a coincidence that you know the voice the tv show is a really successful show we've all got one we can all watch and within a few seconds decide yeah she's no good he's no good right. he's great she's great and um and i i think that it's harder for a non-musician to have an opinion about is that drummer good and that's also why people like neil pert are are hailed by non-musicians and musicians alike and no knock on neil pert but he's a flashy drummer and right. flash is the thing that attracts people you know it it, it like not a lot of people are, are are saying, yeah, you know, Levon Helm 
wow, what a great drummer. Right. You know, um, drummers say that. <laughs> right, right. But, but, but literal not, flashy cymbals, lots of yes, them. It, yeah. yeah, like, oh, man, we went to go see Kiss, and Peter Chris is the greatest drummer ever. Or Tommy Lee, you know, you know, with Motley Crue, his, his drum kit goes up in the air, spins around, fireworks shoot out of his ass and stuff. <laughs> he's, the best, he's the best drummer ever. Well, yeah, he's, he's not right. bad, but, uh, you know, Elvin Jones is way better. <laughs> But my point is that with voices, we all have an opinion immediately. Oh, like she can't sing. What, you know, what is she yeah, doing up there? Yeah. Right. I can do better than that. I mean, that's, again, another one of the pitfalls of being a singer. Right. But then you know. you're, but then you're in a studio with a guy like you who's done all these voices, and then you're in the box ready to sing, and you're like, shit, this guy's recorded all these great singers. You know, like, I'm not. A great singer compared to this My, list of people. Well, let's talk crazy, about let's, well, let's talk yeah, about producing crazy. vocals and the emotion behind it because I've felt and I when I'm when I record other bands, I mostly just want to do the vocals because I, I I feel like people often get through this kind of factory process of okay, it's your turn to record and here's the red light and go. And uh, I feel like when I've been treated like the whole process was sacred and to to some extent, everybody has to treat their their contribution is sacred if you want to have the vibe right but like you know when a producer would kick my all the bands out of this all the bandmates out of the studio and like light the candles and sit me down and coax me and stroke my ego and make me feel great then I sang great I'm like that's what has to happen with with my 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 instrument my voice for it to work you know so much there's so much emotional build up to that point to like calm me down to where I can actually sing on a microphone well and I try to replicate that for people if I'm if I'm recording with them do you see any difference between recording guitars or 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 vocals oh absolutely yeah it's it's a it's not an entirely different approach but um I tend to try to do what is necessary and in I don't even know if it's a super conscious decision, although it's maybe more conscious now that I've done it a bunch and I'm just being more thoughtful um, in the process and what it takes to do it. But I do have a tendency to record vocals last. I, I try to stay open to the idea of recording vocals sort of continuously. Hmm. We work, you know, do a couple songs and we'll do vocals, but usually it ends up that vocals get done as one of the last things. And a lot of times that has to do with the rush to write lyrics and, and the editing process. And so I've engaged myself more uh, in to help a, a singer prepare by asking uh, for the lyrics to be emailed to me. Give me the lyrics, we'll print them out. And yeah. uh, I, I know yeah. I did that with Nate. And and uh, I, I'm, I'm a little Double more- Double spaced. <laughs> yeah, I, and I'll and I'll. I, and I appreciate I'll it. it. You were you were more like a nurse. You were like, okay, we're gonna get through this together. You know, I'm gonna help you. We're gonna get the towels. We're gonna get the water. I think you yeah. need that as a singer. I think you need somebody. I appreciate that about you. That's like, they're not. They're looking at it like, man, we got this journey. We got to get through Mordor and back again. And you're like, Frodo Baggins <laughs> has got this burden. And here's Samwise Gamgee next to me, going, all right. I'm gonna get you there, and we're gonna get we're gonna get out. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, yeah, you need I, but it. I, yeah, you need I, I think that. that I think the kind of support that I provide is probably a little more um, of a of a, a like a dad or an older brother. Actually, these days it's more like a dad, um, uh, where I, you know, like 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 dad's gonna make sure that you know like you know we're, he's up first in the morning and everything's gonna be ready for you to go. And if it involves candles and and mood setting stuff, I'll do that. It's not. Particularly my 
style, but uh, but my style can conform to what's necessary. And and I've worked with some singers who uh, only wanted to show up and sing. Uh, they didn't want really to talk. I mm. had one cl- client in particular. She would arrive about five o'clock in the evening, and we would have a you know a, a little chat, uh, not even in the control room, but outside the studio the live room and she would walk in and the candles would be lit and the mic would be right and the lighting would be right um and then she would cut two or three versions of the song in you know start to finish no stopping unless she really you know sorry can we start again you know she would do that occasionally but Mm. um and and then she would leave she'd come in for a minute for a chat but she kind of refused this is we evolved to this pretty quickly like we, we had some stops and starts when it came time to cut her vocals so long story short is um i i can you know adapt if there's time to uh whatever is yeah. necessary but it you know supportive is really the main thing but also um I, I i try not to be uh i try not to be afraid to say you know is that the right note you're trying to sing and and especially with the a lot of the vocals i work with these days who are screaming um or 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 shouting there may not be a lot of takes, you know, per song. Right. There, there, there may be only the one, and so uh, with 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 bands with screamers, I, I really try to f- discern before we start. What's your methodology? Because a lot of these guys have recorded their own vocals, you know. In I logic, wanted you know, right, and so so that they brings have a methodology. up a good, right. Yeah. That brings up that brings up a good a uh, question I wanted to ask you because I would say that the some of the bands that really influenced me that you recorded as a musician were obviously Sunny Day Real Estate, me and Me Without You, and you know Smashing Pumpkins too. And I was going to say something about vocals earlier that like you know I was a kid in in freshman year in high school walking around campus listening to Smashing Pumpkins, and then here I am in the studio I got to sing these vocals. And I'm like this guy recorded Billy Corgan, I adored Billy Corgan, and here I am got to be the same guy as him and that was some pressure i remember thinking gosh like you know you're you're a high school kid you never think you're gonna do anything work with any of the same people who've worked with each other he's like your high school favorite band um and then there i was that was some pressure that was hard and we had recorded recorded three records or two records and still i felt like i can't do this you guys are so you guys were so prepared, by the way. I mean, and, and I think the proof is in that record. It's so tight and so uh, sort of joyous, joyous and filled with energy. And you guys really, you nailed everything. And you've got a great voice, just a clear as a bell. And, and your, your range is fantastic. But, you know, your ability to sing really high and still be full voice and not jump to your, your head voice, um, it's a it's it's an incredible record. I, I still love it. I I just wish it wasn't on MySpace records. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. That's, that's I know so that was the com- thing. That's so common, but but you know, it's, I mean, I I try not to uh, poison the water for musicians too much with some of the records that I've made. I mean, you guys, well, Nate especially knows that I, I talk a lot, and and <laughs> sometimes sometimes my talking is because. I'm nervous, and so I just don't want have too much. I don't want to have too much dead space. Uh, yeah. yeah, and and I talk and talk and talk, and sometimes to to everyone's detriment. And and there literally, I'm sure there are times when either you or Dan or or uh, you know anybody else, uh, Dave, you know, especially probably Dave, you know, because I think Dave would get impatient. <laughs> he wanted to get on with things. Um, would I'll have to be stopped by my own clients? Like, hey, can we 
stop with this analogy and this great story let's well i think we made it we made a safe word for you didn't we we made a safe word (laughs) what was it it? was like i think we did something like how's that organ sounding oh yeah (laughs) and and then you you had to get back to work when someone said that (laughs) Uh, but 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 i try not to i try not to uh freak people out um uh inadvertently by uh by just the sheer volume of the discography, you know, um, some people don't care. And as I get again, older and my career is stretching into a fourth decade. (laughs) Um, I think that some of these records uh, just don't carry as much sway anymore. You know, I don't think, I don't think I freak out people much that I spent some time working on a smashing pumpkins record. Maybe, you know, maybe your generation, but you know, people who are 15, 20 years younger than you, they they might not be quite so blown away. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and that, and that was one of the things I wanted to talk about, too, is that just like, you know, I grew up in like a, an era where, you know, music defined high school. You yep. walked around and all it was, it wasn't, you know, it was just what band shirts were people wearing. It was like, oh, there was the kids who like Nine Inch Nails. Those are the kids who like Smashing Pumpkins. Those are the kids who like Rage Against the Machine. And it was just, that was what it was. Music defined kids, culture. You knew what your favorite bands looked like. And they were celebrities in your mind. And nowadays it's like, you don't it's just different kids are more into like youtube celebrities or whatever i don't even know it's just you don't see music defining culture as much so did you know sit there and be like i walked around campus with smashing pumpkin shirts shirts on and i had all the records and you know i listened to intently to siamese dream uh probably for a year straight when i was falling asleep and then to be like you know recording uh, a record with the guy that did that worked with that that guy you're just like i don't i was just a kid i don't deserve to be here you know and he was just a kid and he didn't deserve to be there but then you made some comments of like i'd much rather record your voice nate than billy's and i was like what i remember you saying that to me and i was like that was the truth (laughs) i remember going like no way you're just you're just trying to you're just trying to make me feel comfortable in here and then you went on a rant about it and and i was like oh okay he's I, i was serious i mean billy's got a really uh, unusual voice and uh, you know uh, it's distinctive and not uh, not at all unpleasant but uh, but it does pose an engineering challenge at times and and what I found was that the microphones that he had used before with Flood or with uh, Alan Mulder or with Butch I don't, well I, I take it back I don't really remember if he told me what kind of mics and preamps they used for um, for the first album but uh, or for Siamese Dream. Uh, no, I think it was an SM7 or maybe an SM58. Hmm. But uh, a lot of times he said uh, holding the mic um, in the control room for a lot of um, melancholy. And I went with the most expensive mic that I own, like, you know, $15,000 Telefunken M367. And uh, and it sounded fantastic. And um, uh, I, think, I think every vocal that we tracked for the stuff that I worked on that got on the record... Um, was through that microphone with a really nice, you know, chain, and it was exactly what I used at the time. It wasn't it wasn't catering to, uh, to anything other than what I thought sonically sounded best. And I've had people, other engineers yeah. that work with Billy, you know, ask me. Um, I remember Alan Mulder calling me on the phone and asking what what was the chain on that vocal because at this point I'd been fired from that record and they were continuing to track or maybe those guys are starting to mix, but they were just curious as to what the chain was because they liked it. And and they're like, wow, yeah, we never really got it, never really got Billy to try that, <laughs> because Billy's, you know, really strong opinion about everything under the sun, and um, 
and I, you know, I think that it was cool to achieve a little success there in the sense that I think I might have broadened um, his own uh, concept of what his voice could do, could be, could do, and could be recorded by, and um, and and so there's a, a minor victory, you know, in a in a in a battle that was, uh, yeah, that yeah, it's forever, just but, you know as. But yeah, your you know, voice sing- your your voice is a dream to record. Really easy, you know, to to get a great sound. I mean, you sound good in front of everything. I, the mic shootout was like, well, just pick one. Jeez, you know, they all sound good. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it, it, I- my problem is it's, it gets a little robotic though. It just kind of it is oh, the same thing. I remember dude, a couple. You, per- your voice autotunes itself. Uh, it's you, <laughs> I, I, I found that challenging. Uh, first of all, you didn't really need tuning very much. Almost nobody in the band did. Um, that I remember distinctly but i also remember that i had to switch from autotune to melodyne for your voice exclusively because uh the way autotune worked with your voice pushed it over to a robotic you know like wow it would sound autotuned without any having any tuning so i i I rarely tuned your voice and when i did i had to do it in a way to avoid uh sound like sounding like we locked it down right you know, well that was a, a lot of us grew up listening to bands that were auto-tuned like pretty hard right. in the in the in the early 2000s you know yep. when we started our bands like those bands were all like pretty heavily tuned and then we kind of just emulated that like we well we, it was funny because like with, with dan it was, mm-hmm. my voice just it just did one thing i learned it one way and it was really hard to do it any different way so mm-hmm. it's like this is just how i do it I don't. I, I I I am envious of singers who are like, oh, I can do it this way. Okay, let me try it this way. Um, let me let me do it this way. And I'm like, no, it's just gonna come out, and that's what I'm gonna do a hundred <laughs> times. So the only difference this is gonna be is if I sing it on you know in key or not. So let's try it that way. And that that that's hard because you kind of feel like robotic. But I had a couple of producers say that they're like, I can't, I couldn't tell what was tuned and what wasn't tuned. It was just. <laughs> And that wasn't a, I didn't think that was a good thing. I thought it was just, well, shit, I need to do some different stuff so it actually has some more personality. I, I had a feeling like I had a hard time bringing more personality to the to the takes. Like, uh, 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 well, I, in, in, in that sense, um, uh, is it this time? Maybe this time? Um, you know, we, yeah, I think I think we went for a more hushed vocal up front, you know, um, uh, you know, the first yeah. verse. Uh, and and it, yeah. so it we had I think we had more choices when it came to uh, dynamics, right? Because you're you're right. Your voice gets to a point where you're like yeah, and it gets to a uh, almost like a sine wave or a square wave really fast, hmm. and and uh, and so it can sound robotic because we've all heard in that genre of music so much heavily tuned stuff where where all of the enharmonic non musical <sighs> things all get sort of you know blown out and all you're left with is like a sine wave like a synthesizer mm-hmm. and um and some people's voices have are, are so pure and have you know less of those enharmonic you no know, non-musical elements to their voice your voice would get to those to that pure tone really fast so you go you know maybe this time you you just yeah. nail it you go right to that note you wouldn't go time you know you don't have any of that growl or grit in there and and so I think we're already yeah. trained in that genre of music to sort of assume there's a tuning going on, and you also have really good sense of pitch. So, so you, you kind of did it to yourself, like like Matt. <laughs> well, that was Dan. You know? That was Dan. You know, it was always like Dan was so critical all the time. I always felt like if I don't sing or play perfectly, I'm going to hear it from this guy. He oh, was, uh, you know, 
Redhead. He was a good and he was a good and terrible <laughs> bandmate, you know. Well, it's crazy to, because to, because Brad, you have you have a discography full of people who sing wild, like me without you or say anything or ones that I know, where it's like yeah, that it's it's not about perfection, it's about personality. And then you have this yeah. this Sherwood guy just singing perfect. <laughs> well, and I, and I think that I mean my favorite Sherwood record is Q. It it is, mm. and um, although the last one's kick ass, and I was uh, I was biting my nails about that one because it sounded so good. I'm like, ah, damn it, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm still competitive, and I'm still uh, I'm still <laughs> well, same here. Self, that's what I that's what you know? I that's how I feel. Competitive as a singer, you want to be the best singer, and you want to be yeah. great at it, and it's like singing on key and there was a generation of so many bands that were terrible live you know what i mean you were just like and right. bands bands that were known for the singer the band the record's great singer is terrible live i heard that so many times i was like fuck i don't want to be the terrible live guy like I well just isn't wanna, that yeah. uh isn't that a part of maybe why uh rock music has lost so much cultural currency hmm yeah, and, and maybe to a larger extent, music in general um, has uh, popular music in general has lost cultural currency because, you know, historically hip hop groups uh, might have a like a rap group might have a huge hit like you know a DJ's blows up and then there's pressure, especially back in the '90s, um, to monetize that you know and and get out in front of your audience they want to see you and uh, you know Jay Z would cancel tour after tour or they'd start a tour and he'd bail on it halfway through and there'd be uh, you know, pretty rough reviews. Fans would say, like, it's just not that great. You know, it's just right. not that good. He's just singing the backing tracks. And then uh, we've seen the evolution of that to where, huh. uh, you know, you know, a lot of these groups are great now live, but there's an awful lot of spectacle involved, a lot of stagecraft and, and, and a focus on almost everything, but um, musicians performing music, you know, on a stage, right. you know, in front of you. And, uh, and now it's worked into, a lot of um, of the rock acts that uh, I'm using air quotes for rock because they're barely rock, and you go see them live, maybe at Coachella, and and I swear to God, there's backing tracks. These guys are not playing everything that's going on there. You know, right. I mean, when when the you know when when the when the uh, Portugal the man guy takes his hand off the guitar, but the guitar keeps going. Something's going on, you know? <laughs> and aren't they? Aren't yeah, they? The, aren't yeah, they the yeah. ones that say they 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 don't play the tracks? I think they did that they, at the Grammys or whatever. Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, it, it, it for a generation of people, it doesn't seem to matter anymore because right. I don't know that I don't know that uh, people are going to um, to go see live shows for the most part, feeling that they're going there to be anything other than sort of there. There will be a resurgence. There will be a resurgence of the performance of the art form i think you know it's just like yeah it's just like what the spectacle of the 80s led it led to grunge where it's just like here i am i'm fucking depressed and hear me yell well that (laughs) that frustrated us a big a lot brad because i felt like we were a band we tried to be a band and then you know that was the moment when like owl city and all that stuff was coming out yes it was like laptop kid sits up and then he's had he's drawing thousands of people and we're like and then you kind of saw his evolution where he got he felt insecure and then he had to be in a band and so he made his sound with this laptop and this auto-tune and then he felt like all right well i and then he starts touring with musicians who play their instruments feels the insecurity on the opposite end it's just funny how it works but you know i i remember 
you know, being a band and playing songs and trying to get better at this. Like our last tour we did in October, there was a 16 year old kid that was a fill in for one of the bands opening. And, um, he was 16. He was really good, but he pulled me aside at the merch table one day. And he's like, he's like, you guys don't play together all the time. And I go, what do you mean? He's like, you guys just play really well together. Like, I'm just blown away that you guys could play this good together. And I was like, we played for 10 years together. Like, this is the only band I've ever played with. And I thought to myself, like, and I, and I talked to Dan about it. And it was like, this, this generation has not seen people play instruments together well on stage. And I was just like, mm. this is our whole thing. We were self-conscious about it every day. Every band we played with, we wanted to play better than the band before or after us. That was what you did. And then now it's just like a whole scene of laptops opening up, backing tracks, people not even singing. It is <laughs> that that makes that makes a lot of sense. That is a theory that like people sort of see it as a sham, a facade, a fake Milli Vanilli. It works, Let's- but then there's always a reactionary resurgence of of the raw rock and roll. And I think we're primed for it right now. I think a three three or four piece band is just gonna tear the lid off the facade. Are within the next bands? two years, within the next two years, Matt, I, I I like your I like your optimism, <laughs> <laughs> but but I don't know if if it's possible for uh, for any musical artist to make that much of a lasting dent. And I'm going to use the example of of Childish Gambino's song, right? So right. this is America drops, and uh, uh, two three Saturdays ago. And uh, it 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 was an explosion, and it was really gratifying to see because not only is the song really great, the lyrics are really cool, um, and it's a huge step up for uh, for, for him. I, huge. I I just I can't figure out how this guy, uh, how Donald can can find time to you know get that good musically, uh, also write, produce, and act in. Uh, his own amazing TV series and also be in blockbuster movies and Mm. all the things that he's doing. And yet he's still able to, you know, find time to improve as a musical artist. It's pretty incredible. But having said that, it's just one song, but, but twinned with that really great song is also an amazing video crammed with all kinds of layers of messages and, and nods, nods to things that, that are are very much a film school uh, students uh, dream scenario for instance my wife who went to film school right uh, i watched her watch it i'd seen it in the morning on sunday morning on twitter and then when she woke up i said you have to watch this and i watched her mouth literally fall open and she's like i just witnessed like 50 different uh uh hints uh she's also a dancer so choreo you know choreography she's like oh my god there's there's like a dozen different dances that he that he dropped references to including you know blackface uh you know step and fetch it uh you know old racist uh early right. 1900s stuff and and then she was furiously watching it and googling and and coming up with images and i mean it was just like it was like crack to her she was completely thrilled about it and right. uh and 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 so that was really amazing and by wednesday no one was talking about it anymore right <laughs> it was done it, it was done no it was, done. it was memes by it was wednesday, memes by wednesday kanye or trump tweeted and the internet broke yeah. again 
And, no, and no, Mike, it, <laughs> I saw like seven memes of that video on like th- a couple days later. All the it's YouTubers like, right. came it, out with their own version, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah. now that single, when it did come out, it, it debuted at number one, which makes it very rare. It almost never happens. And I'm sure the album, when it comes out, will come out at number one. And he'll probably have, if he's got music that is as good as this, those will also be number one, especially if he puts the visual image uh, to it that's you know so effective. Yeah. He's an incredible. He's an incredible artist. He's turned himself into. Uh, an incredible visual musical artist right. based on based on what you know Childish Gambino has been working up to. But my point being is my b- point being that I don't know it's possible for even somebody who's firing on all cylinders, who has all forms of media. He's got a major film opening right. uh, this weekend or next weekend with Solo. He's the star of a Star Wars movie. You know, um, he's got. Uh, He's got this TV series. He just was on SNL. He's got everyone yeah, wanting he's like, to know he, he's what like, he's doing. He's like an Elon Musk type guy. Yes, but <laughs> is, is he gonna is he gonna make any money putting out music? Probably not. No. You know, is he is is it gonna have is it gonna have staying power two weeks after it's come out? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, so you're saying it's just it's it so it's it's so competitive and the cultures are so siloed that for one piece of content or album to kind of take over the narrative of our whole society is just, it just seems like that just can't happen anymore. I I think that it cannot happen. I think Hmm. it's, I think, I think that our, our consumption of all media is so diffuse Hmm. um, uh, that I think that it's impossible really for, uh, you know, a Fleetwood Mac or a Clash or uh, Dolly Parton (laughs) or Kenny Rogers. I don't know. I mean, I think it's impossible for any one artist um, uh, to, to, to use the, uh, the horrible term i remember own the space right right i remember i I remember being like a jaded band guy and um i'll admit this on the podcast uh what's his face who owns alternative press magazine went on this rant one day about how like we're never going to see another nirvana there's another nirvana out there and he was just kind of like what happened to this generation kind of thing and i kind of like logged in and i was like Says the dude who put All Time Low as Band of the Year on the front of his magazine. <laughs> and he wrote back, He, I totally triggered him, and he wrote back like, F you, I bet your record collection's so much bigger than mine, and you're so much cooler than me. And I was just like, no, you're doing what everyone else is doing. You're just making money off of whatever is popular already. And you're not really pushing... You're not really pushing culture in a direction where it's going to support Nirvana, right? It's or, just not- or, or, or like, like Brad, you you mentioned some somebody called you about Shrimp Boat, <laughs> you know, yeah. to put it on the cover of a magazine, and wanted to make sure that they were a legitimate band. Like no one was telling them, "Hey, you need to do this because they're popular." They're saying, "Oh, let, we're going to find something cool and and publicize it," and uh, and that's a totally different mindset than. Than just going, oh, everyone wants to see these cute boys' faces, so let's but every, m- but jump on board. It's like our, but it's like our generation wants that to happen again. We love that about our our, our time, and we kind of caught the tail end of it. But it's like, you know, I think when you say it's funny because when you say the childish Gambino guy can't make money in music, everyone listening goes, "What? Yeah. He's everywhere!" And people don't realize when you break it all down, there's just nothing left. Well, the video cost a million bucks, so. That's it. I mean, uh, he's gonna he's gonna make money doing um, his brand, doing some some of his other yeah. some of his other art and uh, sure and sh- sure. I'm sure you know his his deal with FX 
for Atlanta, I'm sure pays him really well. And, uh, and he should be paid really well. He's a great actor and he's a great writer and he's obviously a great director. There, there's, there's so many things this guy can do. And there's a lot of people who can do what he does. Um, there really are. Um, it's, but usually you're encouraged by yourself or by your peers or by mentors to focus on the thing that you might be able to, you know, get the most satisfaction out of. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not talking about money necessarily. I'm just like, you know, like, hey, you might be a great writer and maybe you want to become an independent journalist, but you can also write really great songs. Well, I really love playing songs. Okay, focus on that. Uh, Donald's one of those people that probably said, you know, I'm going to do all of it. And, and you know, I'm like probably everybody else. My introduction to Donald Glover was through the TV show Community. Hmm. And, um, and, and I'm probably like every other white viewer of that show. I love this adorable, geeky uh african-american character that he played and i'm probably like a lot of other older white um fans of community when when his band you know when he came out as childish gambino i thought that was just the dumbest dumbest name i'd ever heard and it took it, it took a couple of years for me to figure out oh that was actually a name generator that i think it was wu-tang or whatever had a you could go online to their uh, site and they have a your your hip-hop your rap name generator right and Childish Gambino was the name that that Donald, teenage Donald, got when uh, he went to the, na- the this infamous, I think it was Wu Tang, uh, infamous Wu Tang name generator, yeah. and um, <laughs> and, so, and so actually like in the hip hop community, well that's pretty legit, you know that's cool, right? It sort of shows that he's been like, part of the game the whole time, and it but it took me a long time to understand that that okay Donald isn't just like this, you know he isn't he isn't his character on. On community, he's actually more than that, and it was really Atlanta, the first season of Atlanta, where I realized, well, this guy, he's like, he's 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 the real deal. But I, I think Donald's probably mm-hmm. always been the real deal. You know, you don't you don't find this stuff out usually until they've broken through enough. There's so many layers, and so again, the media consumption is so diffuse that even a massive talent can really struggle and oftentimes fail to really get any traction whatsoever. It's it's it's. Uh, do you think that's it's like why there's there's like a resurgence in nostalgia of like, well, shit, I can't sort through whatever's going on now. I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna go backwards and pull out the stuff I loved and just well, well, stick with that. Absolutely, I think that um, I I I know that there's research that shows that um, I think it was maybe from a few years back or maybe longer that shows that musical uh, tastes and uh, that are are kind of set in your teenage years. And so, you know, political ideologies happen to, to seem to set more in your twenties and your thirties. Mm. But but musical stuff, um, the stuff that was around when you're between like maybe twelve and seventeen years old, what you were listening to then, oftentimes will will be the stuff that that sort of sticks with you. Mm. So it doesn't matter what generation you are, the music that was being played or that you were playing at that time is the stuff that you will come back to and that you may prefer that genre or even just those artists from there on out. So, um, so yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm perfectly guilty of that. So I love Molly Hatchet. I might be the only person that you'll meet in your life that loves, you know, unabashedly the band Molly Hatchet. Hmm. And, and I love McCoy Tyner and, you know, like a <laughs> bizarre mix of, of strange artists, but it was just the stuff that I loved to skateboard to, you know, that, like before I found punk rock, which had the right tempos, um, you know, it, it, I was listening to anything that was fast enough or they get you pumped up enough 
Um, that's why I love ACDC, you know, like everything up through um, Highway to Hell, it was uh, it was all great skateboard music. You'd have to skip over some of the stupid ballads, but like it was great music to skateboard yeah. to. And and mm. then when, when like Devo showed up, like and, and then eventually like the Sex Pistols and Punk Rock, it was just great music to skate to. And uh, and it also was great music, but for me, I had it had to have a purpose. If it was going to be rock well, music, it well, had it had to be skatable. <laughs> well, what do you think about like? I mean, our generation always uses Nirvana as like the band, and it feels like for us, like that was it. That was the last really big culture. I just remember that was the explosion, and I was probably mm-hmm. I don't know seventh grade, sixth grade. I mean. I know you were around in the scene at that time, and do you agree with our generation when we think about that band? And I mean, you know, you knew them probably before and after. Um, what do you have to say about all that in terms of what it did to culture and changed everything? I, I think Nirvana was the last really huge rock band phenomenon. Absolutely, and and those of us that were around old enough and in the scene. Um, we remember pre nevermind and post nevermind and and some of us like myself you know didn't work with nirvana then but um i was uh i was producing a band called precious wax drippings and they did a a co tour did some dates with nirvana during the bleach tour and um saw actually i did sound for um for nirvana um because i was also doing sound for precious wax drippings at a local club right around the corner from the studio and Nirvana, I also saw them in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and one were, one, you know, the same tour, and they were terrible every single time. They were terrible, <laughs> and I forget, I forget what hack they had on drums, but it was like, you know, some some bad drummer. I, you know, he Dave was Grohl. in a band. No, not Dave. No, no, before this Dave. Is, this is this is right. pre Dave. Okay. Um, I did see Scream at uh, the Cubby Bear. I think it was a Cubby Bear in Chicago, and uh, they weren't very good either, except that there was this. There was this little dynamo with super long hair playing drums, and that was the only memorable thing about Scream for me, at least. Um, but he hadn't joined the band yet, and I, I just loathed Nirvana. Um, I hated Bleach, but mostly uh, I listened to Bleach because I'd seen them play, and I was, you know, starting to get. I was a member of the Sub Pop Singles Club, so I was, I was checking stuff out. But I could not get over the live disaster that had been nirvana at that time and they were bored and they obviously this drummer was just not working for them and they they would play a couple of songs and then they start trading instruments or knocking things over they were drunk or high or whatever uh, chris would try to play through things but the overall effect was like you guys can't even be bothered to put it together and this whole like this destroy our shit on stage and like you know, and flip everybody off and just piss off your audience. I saw Gigi Allen do that, and it wasn't impressive when Gigi was doing it. It's like <laughs> I, I, I was over that, you know. I, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't mind. I uh, plus, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough to see Steve Albini's band Big Black multiple times. I, I kind of felt like I saw the people who are best at doing this. You know, right? Saw Sonic, saw Sonic Youth at the West end right year years before they were even on Homestead, I think, I mean, like, or, or maybe right at, you know, they did earlier in their careers. Like I, I, I got to see Glenn Bronco's orchestra. I saw real sort of anarch, anarchic music, mostly by luck, but, right. but I did get to see some of these seminal early artists. And I found that the, the, the version of Nirvana I was seeing was just a fucking joke. I really, <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't hear anything in, in what Kurt was doing, you know, chord wise or certainly singing because he was hardly singing he would just howl it just seemed really cathartic 
and adolescent. I really didn't like it. I especially didn't like the drummer. So, um, so less than like a year later, or maybe a year and a half later, uh, the drummer for Precious Wax Drippings, who who eventually became a founding member of Tortoise and has been in Tortoise for years now, um, he ran to the st- he came, ran by the studio all like huffing and puffing. He's like, "Dude, I got an advanced CD of of Nirvana." I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> so and he's like no seriously stop what we're doing can we just put it up and play it and i said sure and he put on never mind and i my I, my jaw literally fell open I, I i could not believe that this was the same band hmm. i couldn't believe it i could not believe what i was hearing and we listened to the entire cd and johnny was just going like man shaking his head because johnny's an amazing drummer as well and he's like that's that dude from Scream. I'm like, who is this drummer? We were both just floored <laughs> at the power of it. And and then a few weeks later, they did a a, a show, a sold out show, sort of the, for the press, like a pre release thing uh, at the at the Metro in Chicago. And I went to that. Oh, I really played there. Squ- yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, a lot of us have. And uh, and and it was sold out, and like the buzz was enormous. Like this is a groundswell. And again, pointing about uh, talking to, about how this media thing works, like word of mouth had just exploded. A, a band that had been sort of hailed in the Northwest and by some fanzines as a great band, but really weren't doing it live, had suddenly become this insanely like like powerful band. And it was all from word of mouth because of the record they'd made with Butch, hmm. mixed by Andy Wallace, and uh, and that show was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen on a stage. Like they peeled the wall, uh, the paint off the walls and the, and the audience was so ready to see them play. Um, it was incredible. And, uh, and that was 1991, right as the record came out. And, uh, and then, you know, the rest is history, but there was pre Nirvana and there was post Nirvana. There was and, both. Um, never mind. Yeah. Pre- pre- oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm really glad to have been around for that, but I, I'm especially glad to have been able to witness the transformation of that band via so you uh, think via, that you know you think that it was something that they tapped into when they went back something that dave brought to the band it wasn't just butch pushing the buttons it was something different that dave brought in i'm assuming it's all of those things I, I, butch is a great record producer and he's got a light touch when it comes to um uh getting great performances again it helps that he's a longtime musician and uh and had been really he'd been in the trenches putting out you know putting out producing and and engineering lots and lots and lots of of really thorny intense uh you know artists uh and getting you know like a quote-unquote pop performance out of a band like killdozer well butch has really pop sensibilities um in his own bands art rock and progressive rock and sort of new wave that's what i remember of butch in my teenage years he was in a band called spooner and i used to see spooner every time they'd play rockford and my band actually opened for spooner several times back when i was still in high school and uh we're talking 1981 82 83 and uh and i booked time with my band at um smart but we canceled it uh, because we went with another studio in our hometown of rockford but my point being that butch has uh, strong pop sensibilities, but the clients that were coming into his studio just out of necessity because of where they're located were these really noisy, noisy, post-rocky, you know, just indie, you know, 
uh, punk rock and just noise rock, like Detroitson and uh, and especially Killdozer. And he was making records that sounded kick-ass, and they would have a, a little bit of a sheen to them that, that they weren't getting at other studios, I'm assuming mostly because the engineers at the other studios in the area in Wisconsin probably didn't have any affinity for uh, the music they were playing, nor did they care enough. You know, Usually if, if it was punk rock, you would just take their money, do the bare minimum, you know, right. s- sneer at them as they entered and as they left and, la- <laughs> and, and, and laugh with your buddies as you put on another Steely Dan thing and smoke a bowl afterwards, you know, <laughs> at, you know just a lack of respect. Um, and also, frankly, not a very honed skill set because recording really, really loud vocals and really, really loud guitars and drums yeah. is really hard to do. <laughs> it's I, challenging. I, oh, I... I don't. I never really wanted to be in that. I always was just like really thankful for anyone who helped us do that job because it was just so hard and yeah. it was just so. I mean, how do you pick? You know, like yeah. How do you pick which filter you throw on? You can throw a billion on. And it's just I don't even know where you begin to start to make these decisions. But I have one last one last question. I feel like um, one of the bands on the indie world that felt like they were they had a little bit of that nirvana mystique was me without you in the small time game um they just kind of came out of nowhere and they were on this tooth and nail records and they were just totally different i remember a couple guys in our band just fell in love with that band um you know aaron was so different uh he was just this front man that came out i remember walk uh watching him a couple times just going like what the hell what just happened that was amazing like what was it like working with that band and we can kind of this has been a long podcast long good podcast <laughs> but I, I i wanted to touch on that before we before we called it well I, i'm glad you mentioned me without you because that i that's one of the more extraordinary relationships i've had in a recording studio um i love that band and uh i love what they became um i thought a to b life was was a really great record and I will admit that I had heard about them because it's an interesting name and um, and yet I hadn't uh, I hadn't heard the record at all but they contacted me and said that they wanted to meet with me uh, about maybe making a record and they were on tour I think um, not playing in LA but they were coming from maybe San Francisco heading down to San Diego and we met at a nearby restaurant down the street from where I live and we all sat at a big table and we talked about stuff. I got to meet everybody in their entourage, you know, girlfriends and and uh, and hangers on. They always had a crew of people back then, um, maybe a dozen or more people. And we're sitting at this big table, and um, and I really didn't know much about them yet. I hadn't heard the music because it was very quick. They're like, "Hey, would you have a chance? They just happened to be passing through L.A. Can you stop and get breakfast?" Sure. So that's exactly what we did. And when the food all arrived, I noticed that people weren't eating. They're waiting for the plates to be put down. So um, when everybody's plates are down, they all join hands and pray. And I'm, then I realized, oh, it's another one of those fans of Sunday Day Real Estate. This is a, another another faith-based band, <laughs> uh, <and laughs> which is fine because I've, I've recorded a series of them. And, and it's always fun and interesting to me to see how they broach that topic with me um hmm. uh and uh and so you know i i bowed my head and closed my eyes and and uh waited for the praying to stop and and then we ate 
and and by the end of the breakfast, I had to point out to them that that um, I asked them, "Are you a religious band? Are you a faith based band?" And they said, "Well, yes, sorta. Yes, yes. Of course, we, we're we're all we're all Christian. We all uh, you know you know we're on tooth and nail." And uh, and I had to say that um, I'm a non believer. I I. I, I don't want to argue with anybody about it. Um, I, I might be wrong, but, you know, but this is the conclusion that I've come to. And, uh, but I, I would like to talk to you guys about making music, but I want to say that up front so that uh, if that makes anybody uncomfortable, I, you know, we, we need to deal with it or maybe you need to you know, find someone else to do it. And, uh, and they're like most other artists in that situation. They're like, yeah, we kind of like those records you make. So, we're fine with it. <laughs> just, can you make it sound like them. that last, you know, for, for fire, like you make it sound like fire theft? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, come on, Satan, let's go make that record. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and so what, so then a few months later they, they were sending me, you know, uh, demos of the songs and they were just fantastic, but there was no vocals on them at all. Uh, none, like just, just all instrumental. And, uh, they showed up for pre-production in Los Angeles and we started going in, into the songs and Aaron would sit on a stool with a microphone and, and there'd be no shouting, no singing, no, no anything. And, uh, he was very shy and, and didn't want to speak much. And it took a really long time for me to figure out that he hadn't really written anything, um, lyrics yet, or at least that's what I thought he hadn't done. He, you know, like, okay, well, we'll address this as we're recording. And as we're recording still, he's not sending me any lyrics. Um, he doesn't really, he didn't have email back then, I don't think, or he wasn't, you know, he wasn't using a laptop. He was just writing everything out, but he wasn't going to share those lyrics with me till the very end. And, and then he said, I, I, I can't even shout. I mean, I, I can't do these vocals. My, my voice has changed. I don't know what's wrong. And, um, and the band had noticed this because they toured their way out to Los Angeles. So I'm trying to wrap this up, but no, this is <laughs> he great. basically, had, he had forgotten how to shout forget singing he'd never sung a note on any uh, any of you know of their other songs that was a whole other topic but he had said that he'd, he'd like maybe to sing someday but he wasn't sure whether it was going to happen because he's not i'm not a singer i'm not even a musician is what he would say he's so humble and so self-deprecating but we eventually and i'm like you know we got us we got to start recording a vocal here so we set some mics up and he was shouting and instead of having the the aaron weiss you know uh sort of you know blown out you know i you know i wrote a forward liar you know mm -hmm. um it was uh it was constrained and pinched and and uh and just not right uh and I, it was i was stumped as was he and he'd come in we'd sent everybody else away they're all like hanging out maybe going to the beach and relaxing after all this tracking and also i think they were worried <laughs> as a band <laughs> what's going on with our singer and he started saying yeah i think i should just quit i think i should you know if i quit now the band can still maybe find a singer and we can sort of salvage this stuff, but it's obviously, it's not going to work. And we went two weeks, almost two weeks, like 12 days. And at the end of every day I'd walk in and my wife would say like, how did it go? I'm like, I cannot crack the case on this. I do not know what's wrong with Aaron's voice. I can't figure it out. Um, I can't figure it out. I don't know what's gone wrong here. I would try, uh, different devices and tricks. And I was like looking on the internet, like, you know, uh, uh, I, I called a friend of mine who was a vocal coach and uh, nothing seemed to work. And there was one demo of a song um, that was like maybe from a year before, a song that had was older, where um, 
we had been tracking and he was crying and upset and I was on the verge of tears because I, I realized like this is falling apart. The band would show up and like Ricky would come in and say, any luck, you know, thumbs up. And I'm like, eh. I don't know, like people were starting to panic and they had to leave to get to Cornerstone um, in a few days, two days. So long story short is uh, I put up the demo. We listened to what we'd cobbled together of, of one song and the demo of that song. And I'm like, listen to the difference. Like you're, you're going, you know, and then we played the demo. He's like, rah, 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 rah. and he stood there next to me, and he was like, <clears throat> "Okay, let me go out and try this." And he went out there, and he just shouted the song top to bottom perfectly. <laughs> and he, I was so excited that I wanted to stop recording just so I could scream and say, "That's it! That's it! That's it!" But he was doing so well, I just let him go all the way to the end of the song. At the end of it, I'm like, "Aaron, come in here right now!" And he ran in. He knew that he'd gotten it, and. The hair is standing on my arms right now, actually. <laughs> and, and I play it back for him, and he just was so overjoyed. He, he, he's like, is that it? I'm like, dude, that's it. And he's like, I was just not singing right. I, he, neither one of us could explain it, but just having the, the contrast between when he was singing correctly and where he sort of developed a bad habit of singing way up high, constricted, hmm. I don't know how it happened, but he figured it out. Um, it might have been divine intervention. I don't know. But within a half an hour, we had tracked, like, I think all the vocals for six songs in a, in less than an hour. And the band came by, and they had been used to us basically having this look of panic and disappointment on our faces. And, and Aaron was, like, doing cartwheels in the backyard, like, so overjoyed, so relieved. And the band was like, what's going on? And we played them all these songs. And there was much weeping and and hallelujah -ing. <laughs> it, was, it, it was one of the craziest experiences that i've ever had and then then i just said okay guys go enjoy yourselves relax everyone take this collective you know sigh of relief and aaron and i are going to knock this out and we did all the vocals in a day we did a, a little bit of extra stuff the, the last day and then and then i taught him to sing <laughs> in the last couple of hours we had the bass player come in and do his background vocals and Mike sang a few things, did some group stuff and boom. And then they were like, you know, the tour managers like looking at us, watch, if we don't leave now, we're not going to make it to Cornerstone. We got to drive straight to Illinois right now. And they left and went to Cornerstone. And then I finished the record and that's Catch for Us the Foxes. <laughs> and and it was so uh, skin of the teeth. Like I've never worked on a record that was, that was so much at stake and, and so little progress until the very, very end. And, and, uh, hmm. and, and what a great record. And then they showed up, you know, a year and a half later or two years later yeah. to do uh, Brother Sister, which is one of the greatest records I've ever well, had the pleasure of working on. And by then he'd figured it all out and was singing and making, playing music, uh, you know, guitar and an accordion. And his, he just, he grew exponentially between the time, you know, they entered the studio to do Catch and they showed up to make Brother Sister. And, uh, and it's been very gratifying to see their career mature as, as much as it has and to, to see them overcome the bias against uh, faith-based music um, uh, and, and, uh, and, and the bias within Christian faith-based music to having any, any, any Islamic references at all. The fact that he was singing uh, you know, from the Quran on every record, mm -hmm. uh, made it, made it. So tooth and nail had trouble getting their CDs into a lot of their regular stores back when mm -hmm. there were still, you know, Christian reading rooms that would, um, bookstores that would carry CDs. Right. Uh, they, many refused and it took Aaron 
uh, to write a letter translating, you know, this is basically how God is great. We all love God. God is the true God. God is love. You know, God is not Allah. God is Jehovah. This is is recently, (laughs) recently post nine 11. And, uh, and, and, and so, uh, we did have some discussions. Should we take that off of there? You know, should we do a version for the and and of course that was just not going to fly with, right. with the band. I I love that band. I I love the uniqueness of that band. How there literally is no band like them on earth. Yep. Um. Uh. And a lot of that's due to the lyrics that Aaron writes. He's maybe the best lyricist that I've ever worked with. He's uh, uh, he's no a poet and, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. He's he's an amazing yeah. writer. He's an he's a, he's, he's incredibly gifted writer i i oftentimes read his lyrics without the music just read them you yeah. know and um uh i i yeah i so i'm so grateful for them um putting up with me for what essentially is four albums i don't work with them anymore and i don't think i'm going to because of their situation and and um uh, and uh oh gosh what's his name um will yip is a great producer and he you know he's in conchahawken which is right where they all live and they've made really great recordings with him, and they're going to continue to do that. And you know, Will's a, a wonderful talent, and he's half my age, and he's kicking ass and doing great. But um, I'm just so grateful to have had the opportunity to work with artists like you know, like that uh, throughout my career. And um, when I work with an artist like that, then an artist like you know, like Sherwood shows up, and and that's also another bell ringer. Or you know? as like, cities like, burn. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many, yeah. and 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 I've been, I've I've got an embarrassment of riches when it comes to that. Where it seems like every five or ten years, and Aaron Lunsford's your favorite drummer ever, right? Oh my god, he's so we're great. we're both we're both friends with him, so you can say he's the worst you've ever worked with, and that'd be fine he's by a, us. He's a terrible drummer, he's a piece of shit, and, and, and an even an, an even worse person. Yeah. <laughs> Great. We'll make him listen to this. You probably will. So, <laughs> no, but I've had a great, I've, I've had a great career, and and um, and I would be lying if I said I, you know, I I don't, you know, wish for these kinds of, uh, uh, sort of epic, you know, moments to happen. And it happened with Liz Fair. My career up to that point had been, you know, really great. I mean, again, my first record I ever worked on, first album I ever worked on was, you know, album of the year, you know, CMJ and, you know, made a real difference in my career immediately. You know, most people don't get that to happen. So I've been really lucky in a lot of ways. But then Sunny Day Real Estate showed up after Liz Fair. Boom. You know, Veruca Salt and then Placebo's debut. God, that was like a huge record, Hmm. especially outside of the United States. And then... Oh, you worked on Placebo? Their debut, yeah, produced and engineered that. Holy jeez. Um, and then, and, and then to have, uh, you know, uh, you know, worked with Pete Yorn and, and, uh, Ben Lee, geez, like, like, like these are all records that are sometimes in different genres of the rock world, but I've been really lucky that way. And, uh, I oftentimes these are debut albums that I, that I end up doing, or like the most important record in a critical record in a band's career. And that's really what it comes down to. Like, I don't really want anybody to want to work with me to do, uh, a mortgage payer or just a reason to go out and tour. I, I, I really would like the opportunity to work with, with bands or artists who are there to try to like make the album of their career, you know? And, and I feel that way about Q. I feel that that was, I think the band was going through a really rough patch as far as like getting along with everybody. And I feel lyrically that you were addressing that in that record. Um, you guys were all older and 
wondering whether or not you wanted to continue this and can you continue it? The, the, the realities of the music industry were, were really not encouraging. I, there's a melancholy and a longing and a sadness, uh, uh, a wistfulness to that record that I really find attractive to this day. And, um, um, I, I like to encourage people to push for the thing that's going to make them, mm. uh, you know, seize up a little bit, you know, when they listen back, you know, like, like, oh God, you know, I know it's happened with Liz Fair. There's songs on that record on Exxon Guyville that she says she has a hard time listening to because she's not that person anymore. Mm. But you know what? We made a record of that person at that time. And it's something that you're going to have a relationship for the rest of your life. Yeah. You're, you know, th these are documents. And I, I just want to be there when the document isn't just a document of like uh, your grocery list for the day. I want mm. that document to be like, you know, a document of something significant in your lives. And I feel like I've been really lucky and maybe getting good at um, selecting those artists and also just, you know, uh, finding when I'm working with a band what what are we doing here? Why are we here? You know? And so much of it comes down to the lyrics. Hmm. Well, thank yeah. you, man. Yeah, that's awesome. That's like a, yeah, a history of uh, a lot of records I like. I think Sunny Day Real Estate was the first record that, you know, that I, on your uh, record catalog that I got into. I mean, Sunny Day was just such a, they were like, a, I don't know, every indie kid knew that band and uh, had it's kind of like it's hard it's a, it's it's a an acquired taste that band i think it took a while to kind of get into them but once you did you were like way into it but anyway we could talk forever i appreciate it we'll <laughs> this will probably have to be a two-part episode um <laughs> which is great because matt's going to be on tour all summer and and uh it'll keep our keep our feed feeding the trolls you're huh? right yeah man well i've had a great time i always I always like it when uh, when people ask good questions, you know, and that's what you've done. I oh, appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks man. <laughs> Thanks for making make, uh, making me feel a little bit better about my self conscious tendencies as a musician and all that stuff. It's uh, I appreciate the uh, compliments and uh, about Sherwood and vocals and stuff. It's very nice and kind oh, of sure. you. You know what and I'm going to do after this? I'm going to I'm 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 seriously. I've already got I've already got cue like queued up in my iTunes before I, before I start working this morning I'm gonna I'm gonna put it on yeah uh, you, you heard that trollsters cue it up today for Nate make him feel right. better uh, <laughs> cue it up cue get it, it up go give shelter again throats are dry let us sing oh, oh bones are cold bring us heat oh Mountains high, let us dream, oh, oh, call us homeward again.